Hello. I hope you've had a great day today. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is Big Voice Jay's Bedtime Stories. The show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep by reading familiar stories set to relaxing music. Links to tonight's stories can be found in the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story? The Night Moth with the Crooked Feeler by Clara Dillingham Pearson The beautiful, brilliant butterflies of the meadow had many cousins living in the forest, most of whom were night moths. They also were very beautiful creatures, but they dressed in duller colors and did not have slender waists. Some of the butterflies, you know, wear whole gowns of black and yellow. Others have stripes of black and white, while some have clear yellow with only a bit of black trimming from the edges of the wings. With only a bit of... While some have clear yellow with only a bit of black trimming the edges of the wings. The moths usually wear brown and have it brightened with touches of buff or dull blue. If they do wear bright colors, it is only on the back pair of wings. And when the moth alights, he slides his front pair of wings over these and covers all the brightness. They do not rest with their wings folded over their heads like the butterflies, but leave them flat. All the day long, when the sun is shining, the moths have to rest on trees and dead leaves. If they were dressed in yellow or red, any passing bird would see them, and there was no telling what might happen. As it is, their brown wings are so nearly the color of dead leaves or bark that you might often look right at them without seeing them. Yet even among moths, there are some more brightly colored than others, and when you find that part of the family quietly dressed, you can know it is because they have to lay the eggs. Moths are safer in dull colors, and the egg layers should always be the safest of all. If anything happened to them, you know, there would be no caterpillar babies. One day, a fine-looking Cecropia moth came out of her chrysalis and clung to the nearest twig while her wings grew and dried and flattened. At first, they had looked like tiny brown leaves all drenched with rain and wrinkled by somebody stepping on them. The fur on her fat body was matted and wet, and even her feelers were damp and stuck to her head. Her six beautiful legs were weak and trembling, and she moved her body restlessly while she tried again and again to raise her crumbled wings. She had not been there so very long before she noticed another Cecropia moth near her. She had not been there so very long before she noticed another Cecropia moth near her, clinging to the other, clinging to the underside of a leaf. He was also just out of the chrysalis and was right. He was also just out of the chrysalis and was drying himself. Good morning, he cried. I think I knew you when we were caterpillars. Fine day to break the chrysalis, isn't it? Lovely, he answered. I remember you very well. You were the caterpillar who showed me where to find food last summer when the hot weather had withered so many of the plants. I thought you would recall me, he said. And when we were spinning our chrysalis... 
And when we were spinning our chrysalides, we visited together. Do you remember that also? Miss Cercropia did. She had been thinking of that when she first spoke, but she hoped he had forgotten. To tell the truth, he had been rather fond of her the fall before, and she, thinking him the handsomest caterpillar of her acquaintance, had smiled upon him and suggested that they spin their cocoons near together. During the long winter, she had regretted this. I was very foolish, he thought, to encourage him. When I get my wings, I may meet people who are better off than he. Now I shall have to be polite to him for the sake of old friendship. I only hope that he will make other acquaintances. I only hope that he will make other acquaintances and leave me free. I must get into the best society. All this time, her neighbor was thinking, I am so glad to see her again. So glad, so glad. When my wings are dry, I will fly over to her, and we will go through the forest together. He was a kind, warm-hearted fellow who cared more for friendship than for beauty or family. Meanwhile, their wings were growing fast and drying and flattening so that by noon they could begin to raise them above their heads. They were very large moths, and their wings were of a soft dust color with little clear, transparent places in them and touches of the most beautiful blue. Quite the shade worn by the peacock who lived on the farm. There was a brown and white border to their wings and on their bodies and legs the fur was white and dark orange. When the Cecropias rest, they spread their wings out flat and do not slide the front pair over the others as their cousins, the Sphinxes, do. The most wonderful of all, though, are their feelers. The butterflies have stiff feelers on their heads with little knobs on the ends or sometimes with part of them thick like tiny clubs. The night moths have many kinds of feelers, most of them being curved. And those of the Cecropias look like reddish-brown feathers pointed at the end. Miss Cecropia's feelers were perfect, and she waved them happily to and fro. Those of her friend she was troubled to see were not what they should have been. One of them was all right. The other was small and crooked. Oh, dear, she said to herself. How that does look. I I hope he will not try to be attentive to me. He did not mind it much. He thought about other things than looks. As night came, a polyphemous moth fluttered. As night came, a polyphemous moth fluttered past. Good evening, cried he. Are you just out? There are a lot of Cecropias coming out today. Miss Cecropia felt quite agitated when she heard this and wondered if she looked all right. Her friend flew over to her just as she raised her wings for flight. Let me go with you, he said. While she was wondering how she could answer him, several other Cecropias came along. They were all more brightly colored than she. Hello, cried one of them as he alighted beside her. First rate night, isn't it? He was a handsome fellow, and his feelers were perfect. But Miss Cecropia did not like his ways, and she drew away from him just as her friend knocked him off the bayonet. While they were fighting, another of the strangers flew to her. May I sit here? he asked. Yes, he murmured. 
thinking her chance had come to get into society. I must say that it served the fellow right for his rudeness to you, said the stranger, in his sweetest way. But who is the moth? But is but who was the moth who was punishing him? Oh, an odd-looking one with a crooked feeler. Sir, said she, moving farther from him, he is a friend of mine, and I do not think it matters to you if he's odd-looking. Oh, said the stranger, oh, you have a bad temper, haven't you? But you are very good-looking in spite of that. There is no telling what he would have said next, for at this minute Mr. Crupia's friend heard the mean things he was saying and flew against him. It was not long before the stranger also was punished, and then the moth with the crooked feeler turned to the others. Do any of you want to try it? he said. You must understand that you cannot be rude before her. And he pointed his right foreleg at Mr. Crupier as she sat trembling on the bench. Her? they cried mockingly as they flew away. There are prettier moths than she. We don't care anything for her. Mr. Crupier's friend would have gone after them to punish them for this impoliteness. But she clung to him and begged him not to. You will be killed. I know you will, she sobbed. And then what will become of me? And then what will become of me? Would you miss me? He asked, as he felt one of his wings now broken and bare. Yes, he cried. You are the best friend I have. Please don't go. But I am such a homely fellow, he said. I don't see how you can like me since I broke my wing. Well, I do like you, she said. Your wing isn't much broken after all, and I like your crooked feeler. It is so different from anybody else's. Mr. Crupia looked very happy as she spoke, and she quite forgot how she once she quite forgot how she once decided to go away from him. There are some people who know. There are some people, you know, who can change their minds in such a sweet and easy way that we almost love them the better for it. One certainly could love Mr. Crupier for this because it showed that she had learned to care more for a warm heart and courage than for whole wings and straight feelers. Mr. Crupier did not live long after this, unfortunately, but they were very, very happy together, and she often said to her friends as she laid her eggs in the best places, I only hope that when my caterpillar babies are grown and have come out of the chrysalids, they may be as good and as brave as their father was. This is an imperfect world, which produces imperfect people and imperfect things. But there's a little bit of perfectness in all of us. We may not have the perfect looks, but we've got the perfect heart, perfect courage, the perfect steel will. And you can find all of that in the pages of Match.com. Enter code BVJ in the promo code and it'll do absolutely nothing because this is not a sponsored read. Our next story, The Merino Sheep by Banjo Patterson. People have got the impression that the merino is a gentle, bleeding animal that gets its living without trouble to anybody and comes up every year to be shorn with a pleased smile upon its amiable face. 
It is my purpose here to exhibit the merino sheep in his true light. First, let us give him his due. No one can accuse him of being a ferocious animal. No one could ever say that a sheep attacked him without provocation. Oh, there is an old bush story of a man who was discovered in the act of killing a neighbor's weather. Hello, said the neighbor. What's this? Killing my sheep? What have you got to say for yourself? Yes, said the man with an air of virtuous indignation. I am killing your sheep. I will kill any man's sheep that bites me. But as a rule, the merino refrains from using his teeth on people. He goes to work in another way. The truth is that he is a dangerous monomaniac, and his one idea is to ruin the man who owns him. With this object in view, he will display a talent for getting into trouble and a genius for dying that are almost incredible. If a mob of sheep see a bushfire closing round them, do they run away out of danger? Not at all. They rush round and round in a ring till the fire burns them up. If they are in a riverbed with a howling flood coming down, they will stubbornly refuse to cross three inches of water to save themselves. Dogs may bark and men may shriek, but the sheep won't move. They will wait there till the flood comes and drowns them all, and then their corpses go down the river on their backs with their feet in the air. A mob will crawl along a road slowly enough to exasperate a snail, but let a lamb get away in a bit of rough country and a racehorse can't head him back again. If sheep are put into a big paddock with water in three corners of it, they will resolutely crowd into the fourth and die of thirst. When being counted out at a gate, if a scrap of bark be left on the ground in the gateway, they will refuse to step over it until dogs and men have sweated and toiled and sworn and healed them up and spoke to them and fairly jammed them at it. At last one will gather courage, rush at the fancied obstacle, spring over it about six feet in the air and dart away. The next does exactly the same but jumps a bit higher. Then comes a rush of them following one another in wild bounds like antelopes until one overjumps himself and alights on his head. This frightens those still in the yard and they stop running out. Then the dogging and shrieking and hustling and tearing have to be gone through all over again. This on a red-hot day, mind you, with clouds... This on a red-hot day, mind you, with clouds of blinding dust about, the yoke of wool irritating your eyes, and perhaps three or four thousand sheep to put... three or four thousand sheep to put through. The delay throws out the man who is counting, and he forgets whether he left off at forty-five or ninety-five. The dogs, meanwhile, have taken a first chance to slip over the fence and hide in the shade somewhere. And then there are loud whistlings and oats and calls for Rover and Bluey. At last, a dirt-begrimed man jumps over the fence, unearths Bluey, and hauls him back by the ear. Bluey sets to work barking and healing him up again, and pretends that he thoroughly enjoys it, but all the while he's looking out for another chance to clear. And this time he won't be discovered in a hurry. There is a well-authenticated story of a shipload of sheep that was lost because an old ram jumped overboard and all the rest followed him. 
There is a well-authenticated story of a shipload of sheep that was lost because an old ram jumped overboard and all the rest followed him. No doubt they did, and were proud to do it. A sheep won't go through an open gate on his own responsibility, but he would gladly and proudly follow the leader through the red-hot portals of Hades. And it makes no difference whether the lead goes voluntarily or is hauled struggling and kicking and fighting every inch of the way. For pure sodden stupidity, there is no animal like the Moreno. A lamb will follow a bullock dray drawn by 16 bullocks and and driven by a profane person with a whip under the impression that the aggregate monstrosity is his mother. A ewe never knows her own lamb by sight and apparently has no sense of color. She can recognize its voice half a mile off among a thousand other voices apparently exactly similar, but when she gets within five yards of it, she starts to smell all the other lambs within reach, including the black ones, though her own may be white. The fiendish resemblance which one sheep bears to another is a great advantage to them in their struggles with their owners. It makes it more difficult to draft them out of a strange flock and much harder to tell when they are missing. Concerning this resemblance between sheep, there is a story There is a story told of a fat old Murrumbidgee squatter who gave a big price for a famous ram called Sir Oliver. He took a friend out one day to inspect Sir Oliver and overhauled that animal with a most impressive air of sheep wisdom. Look here, he said, at the fineness of the wool. See the serrations in each, see the serrations in each thread of it? See the density of it? Look at the way his legs and belly are clothed. He's wool all over that sheep. Grand animal. Grand animal. Then they went and had a drink, and the old squatter said, Now, I'll show you the difference between a champion ram and a second raider. So he caught a ram and pointed out its defects. See here, not half the serrations that other sheep had. No density of fleece to speak of. Bare-bellied as a pig compared with Sir Oliver. Not that this isn't a fair sheep, but he'd be dear at one-tenth Sir Oliver's price. By the way, Johnson, to his overseer, what ram is this? That, sir, replied the astounded functionary, that is Sir Oliver, sir. There is another kind of sheep in Australia, as great a curse in its own way, as he... There is another she- There is another kind of sheep in Australia as great a curse in his own way as the Merino, namely the crossbred or half-Merino, half-Lester animal. The crossbred will get through, under, or over any fence you like to put in front of him. He is never satisfied with his owner's run, but always thinks other people's runs must be better, so he sets off to explore. He will strike a course, say, southeast, and so long as the fit takes him, He will keep going southeast through all obstacles. Rivers, fences, growing crops, anything. The Merino relies on passive resistance for his success. The crossbred carries the war into the enemy's camp and becomes a living curse to his owner day and night. Once there was a man who was induced in a weak moment to buy 20 crossbred rams. From that hour, the hand of fate was upon him. They got into all the paddocks they shouldn't have been in. 
They scattered themselves over the run promiscuously. They visited the cultivation paddock and the vegetable garden at their own sweet will. And then they took to roving. In a body, they visited the neighboring stations and played havoc with the sheep all over the district. The wretched owner was constantly getting fiery letters from his neighbors. You blanky rams are here! Come and take them away at once! And he would have to go nine or ten miles to drive them home. Any man who has tried to drive rams on a hot day knows what purgatory is. He was threatened every week with actions for trespass. He tried shutting them up in the sheepyard. They got out and went back to the garden. Then he gailed them in the calf pen. Out again and into a growing crop. Then he set a boy to watch them, but the boy went to sleep. And they were four miles away across country before he got onto their tracks. At length, when they happened accidentally to be at home on their owner's run, there came a big flood. His sheep, mostly Marinos, had plenty of time to get onto high ground and save their lives. But of course they didn't, and were almost all drowned. The owner sat on a rise above the waste of waters and watched the dread and watched the dead animals go by. He was a ruined man. But he said, Thank God those crossbred rams are drowned anyhow. Just as he spoke, there was a splashing in the water, and the twenty rams solemnly swam ashore and ranged themselves in front of him. They were the only survivors of his twenty thousand sheep. He broke down and was taken to an asylum for insane paupers. The crossbreds had fulfilled their destiny. The crossbred drives his owner out of his mind, but the merino ruins his man with greater celerity. Nothing on earth will kill crossbreds. Nothing will keep merinos alive. If they are put on dry, salt-bush country, they die of drought. If they are put on damp, well-watered country, they die of worms, fluke, and foot rot. They die in the wet seasons, and they die in the dry ones. The hard, resentful look on the faces of all bushmen comes from a long course of dealing with merino sheep. The merino dominates the bush and gives to Australian literature its melancholy tinge, its despairing pathos. The poems about dying boundary riders and lonely graves under mournful she-oaks and the direct outcome of the poet's too-close association with that soul-destroying animal. A man who could write anything cheerful after a day in the drafting yards be a freak of nature. Man, that guy does not like sheep. He's got the documents, you know. It's well known. What is also well known is the need for reviews. It what It is what feeds the Apple algorithm. So, if you have a moment, if you like what you hear, Give us a review over there on Apple iTunes. And thank you so much for all your listening and subscribing. Our next story is How the Leopard Got Its Spots by Rudyard Kipling. In the days when everybody started fair, best beloved, the leopard lived in a place called the High Veldt. Remember, it wasn't the low veldt or the bush veldt or the sour veldt, but the exclusively bare, hot, tiny, high veldt, 
where there was sand and sandy-colored rock and exclusively tufts of sandy yellowish grass. The giraffe and the zebra and the eland and the kudu and the hartebees lived there, and they were exclusively sandy yellow-brownish all over. But the leopard, he was the exclusivest, sandiest, yellowish-brownest of them all, a grayish, yellowish, catty-shaped kind of beast, and he matched the veldt to one hair. This was very bad for the giraffe and the zebra and the rest of them, for he would lie down by exclusively yellowish, grayish, brownish stone or clump of grass. And when the giraffe or the zebra or the eland or the kudu or the bushbuck or the bontibuck came by, he would surprise them out of their jumpsome lives. He would indeed. And also, there was an Ethiopian with... There was an Ethiopian with bows and arrows, exclusively grayish, brownish, yellowish man he was then, who lived on the high veldt with the leopard, and the two used to hunt together. The Ethiopian with his bows and arrows, and the leopard exclusively with his teeth and claws, till the giraffe and the eland and the kudu and the quagga and all the rest of them didn't know which way to jump, best beloved. They didn't indeed. After a long time, things lived forever so long in those days, they learned to avoid anything that looked like a leopard or an Ethiopian. And bit by bit, the giraffe began it. Because his legs were the longest, they went away from the high veldt. No. <clears throat> and bit by bit, the giraffe began it. Because his legs were the longest, they went away from the high veldt. They scuffed. They scuttled for days and days till they came to a great forest exclusively full of trees and bushes and stripy, speckly, patchy-blatchy shadows, and there they hid. And after another long time, what was standing half in the shade and half out of it, and with what with the slippery, slidey shadows of the trees falling on them, the giraffe, blew, the giraffe grew blotchy and the zebra grew stripy, and the eland and the kudu grew darker with little wavy gray lines on their backs like bark on a tree trunk. And so, though you could hear them and smell them, you could very seldom see them, and only then when you knew precisely where to look. They had a beautiful time in exclusively speckly, speckly starred. They had a beautiful time in these. They had a beautiful time in the exclusively speckly, speckly shadows. They had a beautiful time in the exclusively speckly, speckly shadows. They had a beautiful time in the exclusively speckly, speckly shadows of the forest, while the leopard and the Ethiopian ran about over the exclusively grayish, yellowish, reddish high veldt outside, wondering where all their breakfasts and their dinners and their teas had gone. At last they were so hungry that they ate rats and beetles and rock rabbits, the leopard and the Ethiopian. And then they met Bavian, the dog-headed barking baboon, who is quite the wisest animal in all South Africa. Said Leopard to Bavan, and it was a very hot day, Where has all the game gone? And Bavian winked. He knew. Said the, Epio- said the Ethiopian to Bavian, Can you tell me the present habitat of the aboriginal fauna? That meant just the same thing, but the Ethiopian always used long words. He was a grown-up. He was a grown-up. And Bavian winked. And Bavian winked. 
He knew. Then said Bavian, The game has gone into other spots, and my advice to you, Leopard, is to go into other spots as soon as you can. And the Ethiopian said, That is all very fine, but I wish to know whether the aboriginal fauna has migrated. Then said Bavian, The aboriginal fauna has joined the aboriginal flora because it was high time for a change. And my advice to you, Ethiopian, is to change as soon as you can. That puzzled the leopard and the Ethiopian, but they set off to look for the aboriginal flora, and presently, after ever so many days, they saw a great, high, tall forest full of tree trunks, all exclusively speckled and sprouted and spotted, dotted and splashed and slashed and hatched and cross-hatched with shadows. You say that quickly aloud, and you will see how very shadowy the forest must have been. What's this? said the leopard. That is so exclusively dark and yet so full of little pieces of light. I don't know, said the Ethiopian. But it ought to be the aboriginal flora. But it ought to be the aboriginal flora. I can smell giraffe, and I can hear giraffe, but I see giraffe. That's curious, said Leopard. I suppose it is because we have just come in out of the sunshine. I can smell zebra, and I can hear zebra, but I can't see zebra. Wait a bit, said the Ethiopian. It's a long time since we've hunted them. Perhaps we've forgotten what they were like. Fiddle, said the leopard. I remember them perfectly on the high veld, especially their marrow bones. Giraffe is about seventeen foot high. Giraffe is about seventeen feet high, of exclusively fulvous golden yellow from head to heel. Zebra is about four and a half feet high, of exclusively grey fawn colour from head to heel. Um, said the Ethiopian, looking into the speckly speckly shadows of the Aboriginal floor forest. Then they ought to show up in this dark place, like ripe bananas in a smokehouse but they didn't. The leopard and the Ethiopian hunted all day, and though they could smell them and hear them, they never saw one of them. For goodness sake, said the leopard at tea time, let us wait till it gets dark. This daylight hunting is a perfect scandal. So they waited till dark, and then the leopard heard something breathing sniffly, and then the leopard and then the leopard heard something breathing sniffily in the starlight that fell all stripey through the branches. And he jumped at the noise, and it smelt like zebra, and it felt like zebra. And when he knocked it down, it kicked like zebra, but he couldn't see it. So he said, Be quiet, oh you person without any form. I am going to sit on your head till morning, because there is something about you that I don't understand. Presently he heard a grunt, and a crash, and a scramble, and the Ethiopian called out, I've caught a thing that I can't see. It smells like giraffe, and it kicks like giraffe, but it hasn't any form. Don't you trust it, said the leopard. Don't you trust it, said the leopard. Sit on its head till the morning, same as me. They haven't any form, any of them. So they sat down on them hard till bright morning time, and then leopard said, what have you at your end of the table, brother? The Ethiopian scratched his head and said, 
It ought to be exclusively a rich, fulvous orange tawny from head to heel. And it ought to be giraffe, but it is covered all over with chestnut breeches. But it is covered all over with chestnut blotches. What have you at your end of the table, brother? And the leopard scratched his head and said, It ought to be exclusively a delicate grayish fawn, and it ought to be zebra, but it is covered but it is covered all over with black and purple stripes. What in the world have you been doing to yourself, zebra? Don't you know that if you were on the high veldt I could see you ten miles off? You haven't any form. Yes, said the zebra, but this isn't the high veldt. Can't you see? I can now, said the leopard, but I couldn't all yesterday. How is it done? Let us up, said the zebra, and we will show you. They let the zebra and the giraffe get up, and zebra moved away to some little thorn bushes where the sunlight fell all stripy, and giraffe moved over to some tallish trees where the shadows fell all blotchy. Now watch, said the zebra and the giraffe. This is the way it's done. One, two, three. Now, where's your breakfast? Leopard stared and Ethiopian stared, but all they could see were some stripy shadows and blotched shadows in the forest, but never a sign of zebra and giraffe. They had just walked off and hidden themselves in the shadowy forest. Hi, hi, said the Ethiopian. That's a trick worth learning. Take a lesson by it, leopard, like a bar of soap and a coal scuttle. Ho, oh, said the leopard. Would it surprise you very much to know that you show up in this dark place like a mustard plaster on a sack of coals? Well, calling names won't catch dinner, said the Ethiopian. The long and the little of it is that we don't match our backgrounds. I'm going to take Bavian's advice. He told me I ought to change, and as I've nothing to change except my skin, I'm going to change that. What to? said the leopard, tremendously excited, to a nice working blackish-brownish color with a little purple in it and touches of slaty blue. It will be the very thing for hiding in hollows and behind trees. So he changed his skin then and there, and the leopard was more excited than ever. He had never seen a man change his skin before. But what about me, he said, when the Ethiopian had worked his last little finger into his fine new black skin. You take Bavion's advice, too. He told you to go into spots. So I did, said the leopard. I went into other spots as fast as I could. I went into this spot with you and a lot of good it has done me. Oh, said the Ethiopian. Bavion didn't mean spots in South Africa. He meant spots on your skin. What's the use of that, said the leopard, said the leopard. Think of giraffe, said the Ethiopian. Or, if you prefer stripes, think of zebra. They find their spots, and stripes give them perfect satisfaction. Hmm, said the leopard. I wouldn't look like zebra, not for even so. Not forever so. Well, make up your mind, said the Ethiopian, because I'd hate to go hunting without you. But I must, if you insist on looking like a sunflower against a tarred fence. I'll take spots then, said the leopard, but don't make them too vulgar big. I wouldn't look like giraffe not forever so. 
I'll make them with the tips of my fingers, said the Ethiopian. There's plenty of black left on my skin still. Stand over. Then the Ethiopian put his five fingers close together. There was plenty of black left on his new skin still and pressed them all over the leopard. And whenever the five fingers touched, they left five little black marks all close together. You can see them on any leopard skin you like, best beloved. Sometimes the fingers slipped and the marks got a little blurred. But if you look closely at any leopard now, you will see that there are always five spots of five fat black fingertips. Now you are a beauty, said the Ethiopian. You can lie out on the bare ground and look like a heap of pebbles. You can lie out on the naked rocks and look like a piece of pudding stone. You can lie out on a leafy branch and look like sunshine sifting through the leaves. And you can lie right across the center of a path and look like nothing in particular. Think of that and purr. But if I'm all this, said the leopard, why didn't you go spotty too? Oh, plain black's best, said the Ethiopian. Now, come along and we'll see if we can't get even with Mr. One, Two, Three. Where's your breakfast? Oh, now and then you will hear grown-ups say, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? I don't think even grown-ups would keep on saying such a silly thing if the leopard and the Ethiopian hadn't done it once, do you? But they will never do it again, best beloved. They are quite contented as they are. I must admit, I don't remember that story at all. It's a bit wild. It's crazy. What's not crazy is my gratitude for you. Thank you for listening and subscribing to the podcast. It's available everywhere, even on your smart speaker, I believe. You'd be able to say, hey, play BVJ's Bedtime Stories, and it should fire right up. If you have a story for me to read, please email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. And remember to like and share the website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)